Please take your Bibles, turn along with me to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, but just turn to Titus 1 for now. A pearl of wisdom that I picked up in Russia from a Russian pastor goes like this. There are three things that people can watch endlessly without ever getting bored or tired of it. Watching fire burning, watching water flowing, and watching other people working. (laughs) Which is what you're doing right now. One of the ways I occasionally enjoy watching other people working is by watching that PBS show, This Old House. These masters of their trades come into an old, dilapidated, falling down house and rejuvenate it, give it new life and new usefulness. And one of the first things they do is they make a plan. They lay out the new rooms and the bigger kitchen and they expanded bathrooms. They determine which walls will get torn down and which walls will remain. We did the same thing here in this very room, in this building. Converting this former warehouse and call center into a church building. We had to start with a plan. Just sketches at first and then detailed sets of drawings were produced. This is just what we're seeing here in the book of Titus. The churches of Crete needed some serious work done. They needed an overhaul. They needed some serious remodeling. Some walls needed to be torn down. Other walls needed to be strengthened and shored up. What we have here is the Apostle Paul's plan for renovating these churches on the Isle of Crete. This morning we're going to look at just one verse, Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. But in order to set the context a bit for that singular verse and to better understand what's going on, I'm going to read from the beginning of the letter through chapter 2 and verse 1, just to remind you where we've been and set the context for our passage of Scripture this morning. So Titus chapter 1, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes and identifies himself, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, 
If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good thing. Chapter 2 and verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we come before your word, having read it, and we give you thanks for it. It is a light in the darkness. Its words are food and nourishment to us. We need your word, Lord. We need it desperately. We need direction. We need guidance. We need correction. Your word provides all of that and so much more. Lord, help us to give heed to your word, to hear from you, to realize that you are speaking to us through your word and by your spirit in this moment. Grow us as Christians, grow us as a church. And Lord, put your son, Jesus Christ, on display as the only savior for sinful mankind. And draw all people to yourself, we ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Paul first sketched out his plans for rejuvenating these churches on the Isle of Crete by calling on Titus to, first of all, put the right people in leadership. To put godly, qualified elders, pastors, and overseers who would lead Christ's church in the right direction, who would teach Christ's church the right things. And taking out of leadership and teaching roles those false teachers who had somehow slipped in and were leading the churches astray from the truth. And now in our text this morning, in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul is going to instruct Titus on what he is to focus his time and energy upon. 
and what all churches should continually pursue. So we're going to see together in this single verse, a few short words, three continuing priorities for the gospel-transformed church. Three continuing priorities, three things that must continue to be the mantra of a gospel-transformed church. If a church wants to be healthy, if a church wants to grow in all the right ways, this is what must be present. First of all, we see a gospel-transformed manner of life must be a priority. For the preacher first, and for the congregation as well. A gospel-transformed manner of life. That's the first priority. Paul writes and he says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Paul has just exposed the false teachers for what they really are in verses 10 through 16 of chapter 1. They are rebellious men. They are empty talkers. They are deceivers. They upset whole families and churches. They teach things they should not be teaching. And they do so out of a motivation for selfish gain. These false teachers were proving the old trope about people from Crete to be true. They were liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons, these false teachers were. They had an unhealthy preoccupation with Jewish myths and man-made rules. In other words, stuff that's not the Scripture. These teachings originate from those who turn away from the truth. They're defiled and unbelieving with their mind and conscience being defiled as well. Though they profess to know God, by their lives they deny it. Living lives that are detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. It's quite a description, isn't it? It's quite an indictment. But then comes a significant pivot point in chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul is moving away from the errant lives and errant teachings of the false teachers to the path of truth and right living. And so in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul directly addresses Titus so as to regain his attention and regain Titus's focus. But as for you, but as for you, Titus, this is what I want you to do. There is the strongest of contrast being drawn between the lives and teachings of the false teachers and the life and teaching that Titus is to model to the churches around Crete. Titus is the tip of the gospel spear on Crete. And Paul wants to ensure that the tip of the spear is sharp and ready for duty. Against the dark background of the false teachers and their sinful ways and their deceitful teaching, Titus's life and ministry is to reflect the light of the gospel in all of its multifaceted splendor. And so Paul emphatically addresses Titus here with the pronoun you. Pronouns are big these days. 
This one is emphatic. The fact that it is emphatic is somewhat lost in our English translations. The Greek word translated you is the first word in this sentence, making this reference to Titus an emphatic pronoun of address. Jesus used the same kind of grammatical structure when he addressed Peter in John 21. You may remember that story. Jesus there after his resurrection has just three times restored Peter to usefulness and ministry after Peter's threefold denial of Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. And Jesus then tells Peter that he's going to be faithful to Jesus all the way to death. What a promise. And yet reveals to Jesus that, reveals to Peter rather, that Peter is going to die a martyr's death. And then Jesus says to Peter, follow me. But the apostle John was nearby and Peter said, Jesus, uh, hey, what about him? What's going to happen to him? How's he going to die? Is he going to die a similar death to me? To which Jesus responds in John 21, 22. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I'm talking to you, Peter. I'm talking to you, Titus. I'm talking to you, church. You Follow me, Jesus says. Don't worry of what anyone else is doing. This is what I want you to do. Why owe you? And that's the same kind of emphasis Paul is making here to Titus. Look, I've gone on and on, Titus, about what the false teachers are doing. But you, Titus, here is what I want you to do. Paul said essentially the same thing to Timothy, who was having his own difficult time around this same time with false teachers in the city of Ephesus. Having just described these false teachers and their lives of greed, 1 Timothy 6.11 says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee the very things that the false teachers are scurrying after. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Paul is, as it were, grabbing Titus by the shoulders, getting his attention, looking him squarely in the eyes, and giving Titus his marching orders. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. In contrast to the false teachers, Titus is to live a gospel-transformed manner of life and he's to spend his time and efforts calling others to live a gospel-transformed manner of life. Now, where am I getting this whole manner of life from? From the context. If you read ahead in chapter 2, you will see that Paul is calling Titus to speak to the church about how they should be living in light of the gospel. All right, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 2, 
He there explains how the older men are to live in light of the gospel. Chapter 2 and verse 3, how the older women are to live in light of the gospel. Chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5, how younger women are to live in light of the gospel. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, how younger men are to live in light of the gospel. And then chapters 9 and 10, how slaves, or in our day, employees are to live in light of the gospel. All of this instruction about how to live is informed by and motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which gospel Paul makes explicitly clear in chapters 2 verses 11 through 14. Just following that instruction about how each category of the congregation are to live in light of the gospel, he sets out the gospel explicitly in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared... Appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." Because the grace of God has appeared in Jesus, bringing salvation to all men, this then is how you should live your life. Because the gospel has been declared and received by you, it has instructed us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. The gospel has things to say about what you do on Monday morning. The gospel has massive implications for all our relationships, all our responsibilities, and all of our pursuits. The gospel not only saves us from God's judgment, but it saves us to a new way of living, a new way of relating to others. In the words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 and verse 10, we are to adorn The doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. We are to adorn the doctrine of the gospel in every respect. We're to put it on like a cloak and let it cover us so that when people look at us, they see the gospel lived out in our lives. In other words, we're to represent and testify to and give evidence of the transforming power of the gospel in every sphere of living. And this is in stark contrast to the lives and teaching of the false teachers who are living just like the world. Paul is calling Titus, he's calling the churches of Crete, and he's calling all of us to a gospel-transformed manner of life. How does the gospel change the way you approach your work, your employment? How does the gospel impact the way you act at school? How does the gospel affect the way you interact with your spouse or your siblings or your neighbors? The gospel is to have a transforming effect upon us. How can the gospel have this transforming effect? 
How can we maximize that? Well, that brings us to the second priority, and that is a gospel-fueled ministry of teaching. A gospel-fueled ministry of teaching. Again, Titus 2.1, But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Paul is calling Titus to a ministry of speaking. Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. If the churches of Crete are to be transformed, revitalized, strengthened, Titus is going to have to speak up. Once more for the people in the back. Can you hear me back there? I see that hand. Titus' ministry on Crete was to be largely a speaking ministry. Everywhere he went, he was to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. The word speak here includes all manner of speech. Private conversations, small group teaching, preaching before the gathered assembly, Paul's mandate for Titus to speak encompasses every aspect of his verbal life and ministry, including personal conversations, public prayers, private counseling, and of course, preaching and teaching. It is the very thing that the elder or overseer is to be characterized by in their lives. Look at, back with me at Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. Again, Out with the old, in with the new. Out with the false teachers, in with the good teachers. And what are they supposed to do? Titus 1.9 Healthy elders, overseers, and pastors hold fast the faithful word. They hold on to it. It grips them and they are gripped by it. Hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So the elder, the overseer, the pastor in his speech is to positively instruct and correctively refute. Paul will restate and expand on this command for Titus to speak at the end of chapter 2. Look with me at chapter 2 verse 15. He says, these things speak. Same word. These things speak and exhort and reprove. With all authority, let no one disregard you. Make sure everyone listens to what you're saying. Speak with an authoritative quality. Authority that is not derived from the speaker, but from the message being delivered. The message which is from God. The message which is founded on His Word. It's clear from the immediate context that this ministry of speaking is to be a ministry of teaching and preaching. The elder or overseer is constantly teaching in both large settings and small settings, in formal gatherings and informal conversations, in both private and public. The elder, overseer, pastor is always teaching. The teaching and preaching of God's word are the primary means by which God transforms his church. Let me say that again. The teaching and preaching of God's word 
are the primary means God uses to transform His church. Preaching has fallen on hard times in many circles. It's more about having conversations. Dialogue. But that is not what Paul is calling Titus to here primarily. He is to exhort. He is to refute. He is to reprove with all authority. Letting no one disregard him. Paul is calling Titus to a ministry of preaching and teaching, to a ministry of authoritative declaration in the instruction of the truth. Just as he called Timothy to do the same. You're right there, so just turn to your left to 2 Timothy 4. Timothy and Titus are on kind of parallel tracks, parallel universes doing similar things, committed to a similar ministry in different places. Different circumstances, yes, but largely similar. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, writing to Timothy, near the end of his own life, Paul's own life, Paul writes, he says, 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Does that sound familiar? With great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, but you, Timothy, but you, Titus, Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, declaring the gospel, fulfill your ministry. How would Timothy fulfill his ministry? By preaching the word. By declaring the truth. By heralding the gospel. This is how Timothy would fulfill his ministry. This is how Titus would fulfill his And by it, this is how the church would be transformed. The primary means of grace for transforming the church and for transforming the individual Christian is the preaching and teaching of God's word and the proclamation of the gospel message. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, On the eve of his crucifixion in John 17, 17, he said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The primary tool in our sanctification is the truth of God's word. And the word of God preached brings conviction of sin, Produces heart change, brings about repentance, builds faith, forms character, solidifies our convictions, 
arouses our emotions and informs our thinking. If the churches of Crete were to be reformed and revitalized, it would come by way of Titus' ministry of speaking the truth. This revitalization would come by way of gospel-fueled preaching. You want your church to grow. You want it to grow in all the right ways. You want it to be solid. You want it to be vibrant. Then don't worry so much about filling the seats as filling the pulpit. Thirdly, a gospel-centered message of sound doctrine. That's the third priority. A gospel-centered message of sound doctrine. Now, lest you think Titus' mandate was to simply go around and open his mouth and see what comes out and tell some mildly amusing stories No. Titus wasn't at liberty to speak whatever he wanted to speak. He was to preach and to teach the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. The truth as it had been handed down and received by him. The apostolic teaching of the church, including all the Old Testament the teachings of Jesus and the authoritative teachings of the apostles. Unlike the false teachers who were teaching Jewish myths and man-made rules and all kinds of other useless things leading people away from the truth, Titus' message was to be centered upon sound doctrine. But as for you... Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is literally healthy teaching. The Greek word for sound is the word from which we get our English word hygiene or hygienic. It's healthful. It contributes to health. It's healthy teaching. It is Teaching that is spiritually nutritious and edifying to the listener. It is teaching that is firmly anchored to the truth of God's word and that produces spiritually healthy Christians. It is the pure milk of the word, Peter says, which we should long for like newborn babies. It is the solid meat of the word that Paul says will grow us into greater and greater maturity and strength as a body. The word of God is delicious and nutritious to the Christian. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Think about ancient times, there was nothing sweeter than honey. High fructose corn syrup hadn't been invented yet. And boy, were they lucky. 
come across honey? Sweetest thing you could ever taste. How sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Contrast that with the teaching of the false teachers who were offering only junk food, empty calories of myths, rotten scraps of man-made religion and commandments that made you feel good because you were checking boxes and establishing your own righteousness instead of desperately clinging to the righteousness that is alien to us, the righteousness which is perfect in Christ alone. Sound doctrine, then, is the content of what is to be taught. That is what is to be spoken. It is teaching and doctrine derived directly from the Scriptures. Sound doctrine is everything that the Bible teaches us to be true. And at the core of all sound doctrine must be the gospel itself. The gospel is the nucleus of all sound doctrine. And at the center of the gospel, of course, is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Without the gospel, you may have some aspect of truth, but you never will have sound doctrine. Do you hear that? Without the gospel, you may have some aspect of truth, but you will never have sound doctrine. Because Jesus must be at the center of all sound doctrine. Because Jesus is at the center of the gospel itself. A biblically informed view of the Trinity is good and nice and useful, but without a right understanding that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, it's not sound doctrine. You might have a right view of creation in the first three chapters of Genesis, but without a right view of who Jesus is and what he came to do, you don't have sound doctrine. You might believe all the right things about the second coming, but if you don't get the purpose and result of Jesus' first coming right, you'll never have sound doctrine. Paul emphasized the centrality and the priority of the gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there with me. We're getting ready for Easter. It's coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. This would be great for you to just dwell on in the weeks leading up to our celebration of Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Look at how central Paul views the gospel and what a priority it is in his own ministry and life. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand. This is your only standing. This is your only ground before a holy God. It's the gospel. This is your lifeboat. 
There's no other options around. It's just a vast sea of your own sinfulness and guilt. In which you also stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance, priority one, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This was the message of the apostolic proclamation. This was the message that Paul preached wherever he went on his missionary journeys as he established churches and preached the gospel. This was it. And this was priority one in Paul's life and in his ministry. And it was to be priority one for Titus as well. Titus was to preach and teach the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Now back to Titus. That includes all that the Bible teaches and affirms either directly or by good and necessary consequence. And with the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of it all, at the core. But that's not all that Titus was to teach. He was to teach the things that are fitting to sound doctrine. Now, what does that mean? It means that Titus was to teach things that were appropriate to sound doctrine, that corresponded along with sound doctrine. The things that befit sound doctrine. The things that are derived from sound doctrine. In other words, Titus was to teach not only the truth of sound doctrine, but the things that should always accompany sound doctrine. And in the context, we know what this means. It means sound living is always to accompany sound doctrine. Titus was called not only to preach right doctrine, but to preach right living. See, the false teachers, they proclaimed to know God, but their deeds denied that truth, denied that reality. They didn't know God. Their lives were a mess. Their lives were a wreck. Titus was to teach not only right doctrine, but right living. Not only orthodoxy, but orthopraxy as well. How we are to live in light of the gospel message. That's what he was to teach. How older men are to live. How younger men are to live. How older women are to live. How younger women are to live. And later in chapter 3, how all of us are to live under government authorities. Because of the gospel message. And it's changed us and transformed us. And we're different citizens now. Orthodoxy must always lead to orthopraxy. Speaking the truth then is Titus's mandate. Preaching doctrine is to be his lifelong calling. The declaration of sound doctrine is the key to ongoing gospel transformation in the churches and in the lives of Christians.
the greatest tool that Titus had was to speak the truth wherever he went. Was to preach the gospel and teach the implications of the gospel everywhere he went. And in this way, Christ would transform his church. And in this way, Christ would transform his people. You and I. It's the same for us today. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are our Savior. That you have offered us the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, salvation. Simply receiving it by faith, trusting in you, Jesus, and in your promise that you are sufficient to save. Lord, again, we trust you today. We confess that we can't save ourselves, that you are our only hope, our only lifeboat. And so we climb aboard by faith, trusting in what you have done on the cross and throughout your life of righteousness. Thank you for the fullness and freeness of forgiveness that is ours through faith in you and your finished work. Thank you that that gift of salvation does not merely save us from judgment to come, but it saves us from our old way of living. It saves us to a new way of life. It saves us to new desires It saves us to new paths of walking in righteousness. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd continue to transform us. Do the work of transformation in our lives. None of us is living as we ought. All of us need to grow. To grow in our love and compassion for others. To grow in our love for you supremely to grow in forgiveness, to grow in diligence. Accomplish this work in us, Lord, through your Spirit, by means of the proclamation of your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.